Thanks for joining us for the third part of the conversation between Michaela and myself, looking at the information presented within the YouTube documentary, The Obesity Conspiracy. As we stated previously, if you are suffering from any of the issues that we bring up within the conversation, please make sure you reach out to your personal care provider, primary care physician, to seek the help that you might need. If you think you might have a eating disorder or are worried that you might have an eating disorder and are afraid to reach out to your personal care physician or primary care provider, I provided links for you within the description for this episode. And so with that, let's go ahead and let's get started with the continuation of our discussion. Warning. The following presentation contains information that might contradict what you have previously heard or believed to be true about how the human body works and contains material that is not suitable for closed-minded individuals. Enjoy. All right, so this, uh, first I want to start off with iodine. Mm -hmm. Now, the overarching claim here is that iodine is really oil only in soil, seaweed, and seafood. And the thing about that is American soil sucks, apparently, and so there's really no more iodine left in it. So. If you're not eating high amounts of seaweed and seafood all the time, you probably have an iodine deficiency. And low iodine is a catalyst for, quote, mental retardation, low IQ, and irreversible brain damage, end quote. So is that a, a fair thing to say? And there was also the stipulation that iodine is the greatest cause of preventable mental impairment in the world. Big claim. Okay. No. <laughs> I didn't think so. Anytime that you can rattle off 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 diseases mm -hmm. or cures for diseases from a, from something yeah you have to take it with a grain of salt that's as, as the as the adage goes iodine is involved with a host of metabolic processes right it's a element which we need in very low quantities oh okay it's going to be necessary for production of hormones, mm -hmm. in particular thyroid hormones. Right. And thyroid hormones are necessary for uh, mitochondrial regulation, regulation of the mitochondria, aerobic metabolism. Okay. Neurons are aerobic obligated tissue. It's why we have basically five minutes as a health professional to take care of someone who's, who's had a stroke. Right. Because it's that five minute window of time where we can save the a majority of the neurons that are going ischemic. Right. Before they become infarcted. So the difference between ischemia and infarction, ischemia is where you start having metabolic changes because of low oxygen. Mm -hmm. Whereas infarction is where you actually have death of the tissue. Oh, that's right. And so when I start suffering ischemia, I start sending out signals that say, hey, I'm not getting enough blood perfusion to the area. Mm -hmm. Please grow some more blood vessels. Hey, we need to store more oxygen within the tissues. Neurons don't store oxygen. Right. They're, that's why they're, that's where they're, they're uh, reliant upon blood flow through the uh, areas of the, of the brain. That's mm -hmm. why they need constant perfusion with cerebral spinal fluid because mm -hmm. there is some oxygen within the cerebral spinal fluid that's going to diffuse into the neurons. Because of all of that, we have necessary for iodine in terms of metabolic purposes and aerobic metabolism regulation, predominantly by mitochondrial biogenesis as well as mitochondrial uh, regulation. Iodine is also going to be involved with some neuron metabolism, but not to the point where it's the leading cause for mental uh, 
deficiencies, neuroatypical diagnosing. Yeah, I thought something so, about that was a bit weird. And and so that's that's where it's a, a big no on on okay. that. Okay. The idea that you only get iodine from distinct things is also not entirely true. Oh. And so this is where go to the go to the salt aisle mm-hmm. in your in your store. When yes. I was growing up, there was no such thing as a salt aisle. <laughs> it was table salt and iodized salt. Now it's every known salt, salt. What every All every known salt, salt that you that you want yeah. you can get. Iodized salt mm-hmm. has iodine in the salt. Yes, which is why you if you do not eat dark green vegetables if you do not eat ice cream <laughs> if you do not eat things that have um processed kelp within it oh and there's a lot of things that have processed kelp within it because it's, it's used as a as a as a so one of the things that we use for for uh, a food thickener oh i thought is, you were say food dye well, it's not. It's not necessarily a dye. It's a, it's a food thickener. Mm, okay. Uh, it comes from comes from seaweed. Comes from from kelp. Oh. And so, so we do get iodine in in that fashion. Iodine is going to be involved with with some uh, immune functions. It's going to be involved with some neural neurological function. But it's print for the body. It's principally going to be involved with regulation of thyroid hormone. Okay. And thyroid hormone is going to directly impact my aerobic metabolism which is where we get the the idea that thyroid hormone is going to dictate my metabolic rate that's a it's an old yes. it's an old that's, yes it's an, that was part of the video yes it, it's 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 an old understanding it's an incorrect understanding gotcha but it comes back to people who have uh thyroid deficiencies okay have greater fat masses in their body than people who are either normal thyroid or hyperthyroid. Oh. And that's because when I have low thyroid, when I'm hypothyroidic, mm-hmm. my aerobic metabolism drops. And when my aerobic when my aerobic metabolism drops, so does my beta oxidation. The use of fat, use of lipids for energy purposes. And if I'm not going to use the fats for energy purposes, and if I'm not going to use fats for other things, so remember, fats are going to do a whole bunch of things for for the body. Yes. If I'm not going to use it for all the things I'm going to need it for metabolically, and I'm not getting the signals that say you use it for making ATP, the energy molecule for the body, mm-hmm. then there's no reason for there. Then because of how the fat cells work it's going to get stored within the fat cells. Right. And so people who have low thyroid tend to have more fat mass than people who are normal thyroid or high thyroid. Right. And the ability to produce thyroid hormone is directly related to how much iodine plus other things I have in my diet, including proteins. Oh. So you, you need that, that amino acid mm-hmm. in the diet because that's going to get involved with the production of thyroid hormone makes sense so there was that claim made um and there was also a book that was brought up and i was wondering there was a story an anecdotal story and it it got into the whole thing about supplements and that supplements are great and that they're uh usable and they will get results when you don't have the nutrients that you need naturally naturally quotes but the, the story that the video presented about this book was there was an anonymous man named Jeff, and he had a bunch of problems. So he had depression, he had mood swings, he had skin rashes, he had erectile dysfunction, and he had sore skeletal muscle all the time. So this guy's suffering from, like, he's got a lot going on. He's not just with one ailment. And the claim was he had a high amount of copper circulating in his blood. And not only that, but he was highly nutrient and vitamin deficient. So he had a lot of things missing. And then apparently the doctor subscribed this or uh, 
prescribed this magical supplement that got rid of all that. And the copper was expelled in a bright orange stool. And then magically, he was perfectly fine. So all those issues that I just stated, all the, the soreness, the mood swings, the depression, just multiple areas of, of disturbance, multiple organ systems, it just went away. Like, he just had to get it out, <laughs> and then it was done. So does that, well, supplements, first of all, what do you think about supplements? <laughs> and would that actually realistically happen? Is there a chance? Okay, so we'll, we'll take this step by step here. Okay. Copper toxicity does cause a whole bunch of issues. Oh, it does. Okay. It does. And typically when you have copper toxicity and you take any type of uh, metal coagulant, something that's going to bind onto metals for excretion, mm -hmm. it's going to be excreted through uh, hepatic secretions, through the liver secretions. Okay. Which can be removed either as a, with the bile Mm -hmm. secreted out into into the intestines to be removed it's the one part of feces that actually might be a little bit of excretory even though most feces is not excretory at all right remember the intestines even though it's in the body it's not actually inside the body it's like yeah, having the, skin the, the waste is what's yeah. never gone into the body before yeah. kind yeah. of yeah with, with some with, with some with a few grams of waste product wow most of it's going to get excreted through uric vesicles, thus mm -hmm. packages, cellular packages that get transported to the kidneys and get removed in the kidneys and in urine, or will be sweated out onto the skin and removed that way. Mm -hmm. And so if I have copper toxicity, I will have a whole, I can have a whole bunch of issues that come into play. Because okay. once again, we need copper, but not at super high amounts. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very, very low, very, very low amounts. Uh, old, uh, old contraceptives, oh. uterine, uterine insertion devices. Yes, had copper in them and caused copper toxicity if left in for too long a period of time. Oh, and we would usually see that with caught with copper being embedded with other proteins and other and other metals within pigments. Mm-hmm. Whether you get a bright orange stool from taking something is an indication of probably what's in the thing you took more than copper. Yeah. Because copper is not orange. That's that's what I thought, too, is it was strange that I thought there was a correlation trying to be drawn between copper's color and the stool. And that's what made me think maybe the story is not fully true for some yeah, and, and usually when, when copper interacts with things, it, it's, it will have a different color. Yes. But copper's color is is not orange. And when no. it interacts with things, uh, it usually takes on a uh, a grayish-bluish tint as it becomes oxidized. Yes. Yeah, I've seen... You see, like, a penny with like, all yep. the blue yeah. spots. So, yeah, yeah. so, like, think of penny or think of the, the Statue of Liberty in terms of... Yeah, exactly. ...kind of that, that gray-green, blue-green kind of coloration. That's what copper takes on when it becomes oxidized in, in redox reactions as it starts forming, forming cupric oxide. Right. And so, whether it's true or not, I don't know because I wasn't there to, to examine the stool, so I can't <laughs> yeah. stay, say yes or no. Exactly. So that's that. So yes, we have to worry about how much copper we are consuming, which is why to the next point, mm -hmm. you have to be very careful with supplements. Okay. And here's the reason why. One, and this is one of about 5,000 and I'll keep it about three. <laughs> one, the term supplement means to add to. The reason to, take, the reason to take a supplement is because you are lacking something in your diet. Yes. And so people who follow lower carbohydrate to a low carbohydrate, like a ketotic diet, mm -hmm. are low in certain vitamins because they don't get stuff from their diet because of how their diet is structured, which right. means taking a, a multivitamin in a day becomes beneficial mm -hmm. or taking a, a, a vitamin C becomes beneficial. Taking a vitamin B supplement becomes very beneficial. Right. People who don't eat meat 
mm-hmm. vegetarians are going to be lacking in iron and lacking in vitamin Bs, which means taking right. an iron supplement, taking a vitamin B supplement becomes beneficial. Right. If you are omnivoric, as most people are, mm-hmm. eating meats, eating vegetables, eating everything but garbage, basically. Yeah. Um, you don't have to worry about that because you're getting all of the the vitamins, minerals, and nutrients you need from the food you are eating. Right. Which means you don't need a supplement. One of the things that uh, I hear a lot about, oh, and once again, you know, I don't like to to badmouth companies. I don't like to to badmouth individuals. Right. But there is a lot of people will talk about this supplement AG1. Hmm. And AG1 is somehow this natural vitamin supplement thing that you will put into water and drink. And one of the one of the statements that I hear people say is that it doesn't make my urine neon color. It doesn't cause my urine to have this kind of vibrant orange or vibrant yellow color that I used to get when I was taking other supplements. Oh, if I take vitamin C and I'm already meeting all of my vitamin C requirements. Yeah. Vitamin C is a water soluble vitamin, which means it's going to get eliminated through sweat and through urine. Mm-hmm. It's Eurochrome color. It's color in urine. Yeah. Is orange yellow. Oh, which means okay. that the more vitamin C I, I've taken beyond what I, what I need, the more vibrant orange yellow my urine will be. Oh, wow. Same with vitamin B. Vitamin B has a has an orangish color to it in yes. the Eurochrome, which means that my urine will start taking on a orangish color if I happen to have if I happen to be taking a supplement and taking beyond what I necessarily need for that vitamin. That's different than like vitamin A or vitamin D or vitamin E or vitamin K, which are the fat soluble. Vitamins, which will be stored within the fat tissues, right? Because they're fat soluble. And so, if I'm taking a supplement, if I'm taking a, a vitamin supplement, and I'm noticing that my urine happens to be a specific color, that's an indication that I'm ex- that I'm exceeding what I need for the day or for that moment for that specific vitamin. And so, if I'm taking this AG1 and I don't see a noticeable color. There's two things that are happening. Either that thing is not in that supplement. Yes. Or I'm not getting an additional high enough dose in that supplement to go beyond my body needs at that moment of that time. Or I'm deficient, excessively yes. deficient in that at that moment of time that I'm taking that supplement. And so to indicate that somehow the urine color is the indication of whether or not it's a good supplement or a bad supplement is simply an indication of whether or not it's it's present or not in the urine. Right. That's what that's that's what the Eurochrome is telling me. It's telling me whether something is present or not in the urine. So that's point one on the supplement. Point two on the supplement. There is very little unbiased reporting in scientific literature to indicate that a supplement independent of anything else taking place works or doesn't work. So most of the research out there as it relates to what the what the video the, the obesity conspiracy was basically pointing to right there's very little evidence to to show independent of changing other aspects of my lifestyle a supplement by itself does anything right if you look at what uh, Sarah Welch and I published in 2019 as it relates to the fat loss supplement you get better efficiency and a more beneficial change from simply changing diet and exercise than adding any of the reported fat loss supplements to the diet and exercise. Point three, there is no oversight to what is in a supplement within the United States. Hmm. There is a law that got written in 1993, enacted in 1994, that is basically up until that point, Anything that was labeled as a health supplement was under FDA control, which means that you had to do a study that showed that it actually did what you purported it to do, yes. and it was beneficial to the person to take. Mm-hmm. After that law got passed, there is there's no oversight by the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration within the United States, that oversees the dietary supplements, which is why if you look at the 
any of the bottles, any of the labeling. It will tell you this is not meant to diagnose. This is not meant to treat any type of ailment, even though it's being marketed to treat an ailment. Yes. In in the case of what we're talking about here, it's it's marketed to reduce body fat. Mm-hmm. That's what it's marketed to do. Yes. But it's not being sold under the guise of it's a thing that's going to reduce body fat or it's going to cause weight loss independent of the actual drugs that we talked about previously, the GLP-1 drugs. Yes. And so when we start looking at these factors and we start looking at what's going on with the the issues at hand. Yes. The supplement companies are not regulated, which means that that as long as they put on the label, these claims are not supported or backed up by the FDA. They can put on the label whatever they want to put on the label. Oh, wow. And the FDA only comes in when enough adverse reports have yes. been filed. Oh. So the one of the, the classic cases for this is the ephedra alkaloids of the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And so all of the thermogenic aids that you that you see like sold now, all the fat loss supplements. Yes. They are now claimed to be ephedra free. Mm-hmm. The reason why they're claiming to be ephedra free is because in the early 2000s, there was a rash of deaths that came about from people who were taking the supplements. Yeah. Exercising in adverse environments. Oh. And dying due to heat stroke. Oh, wow. Because they were taking the phallus supplements, doing excessive endurance exercise in adverse environments, excessively hot environments. Yes. Usually wearing clothing that would trap body heat. Yes. That caused their body temperature to rise above 42C. That triggered systemic breakdown. Oh. That led to sepsis and heat stroke. Oh, wow. And so because that happened, the FDA stepped in and the FDA said, you cannot sell these ephedra supplements. Right. Going back to our discussion about caffeine. Yes. There's a, so within caffeine, within anything, there yes. is uh, what's referred to as the, the, the lethal dose. Yes. And the lethal, do- so everything has a lethal dose. The, of course. So, so everything can be toxic, everything can be, can be poisonous. It's all about how it's going to disrupt metabolism. Right. And so within caffeine, there's a lethal dose for caffeine. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm going to take these thermogenic, and that's what they're usually labeled as thermogenic or fat burners, if I'm going to take those and also consume caffeine as I would normally consume caffeine, I can very easily reach my lethal dose for caffeine. Yeah. And what ends up happening is where if you start, if you look at the things to watch out for taking these supplements, mm-hmm. tachycardia, high, mm-hmm. high heart rates, uh, angina, chest pain. Oh. Short, shortness of breath. Mm-hmm. Uh, excessive uh, sputum, excessive coughing of phlegm, particularly oh. white phlegm or clear phlegm, which is an indication of pulmonary hypertension. Oh. And that's because caffeine, once again, it mimics adrenaline, it mimics noradrenaline peripherally, which causes vasoconstriction. Mm -hmm. But it also causes rapid heart rate, causes hypertension, causes changes in the way in which blood is moving around the body, causes changes in pressure within small blood vessels, which can cause issues to come about. Right. And so... Those supplement issues, once again, just taking those three out of the issues that come out from from the supplements, Mm -hmm. supplements themselves are neither good nor bad. It's how we use the chemicals within the supplements relative to what we are normally consuming that leads to the good or bad that can't come about from the supplements. And so we can't say, oh... If you take this supplement, it's going to cause you to do this. If you take this supplement, it's going to cause you to do that. Yes. And that goes all the way down to taking the, the vitamin supplements and taking the mineral right. supplements and like going back to the, to the iodine. Mm-hmm. And the fact that 
iodine becomes a supplemental thing. Yes. If you look at the the foods, particularly the the processed breads, the processed cereals, Mm -hmm. a lot of them are labeled as being fortified. Yes. Fortification is a supplement because we're, we're supplementing what would normally be within the foods with additional vitamins, particularly the B vitamins. Right. And that's because we, we've, we've found out by doing all of the bleaching, by doing all the processing of, the, of milling the flowers and removing all of the bran and the arl, the covering of the, the grains, mm-hmm. we remove all of the vitamins that happen to be there, which is yes. why like um, the, the vitamin C coming from citrus fruits. In order to get the vitamin C, you actually have to eat the white part of the rind. Oh. The stuff that tastes bitter. Yeah. And that's because of what of, of where vitamin C happens to be. But we found out that, and actually by we I mean the British Navy and mm-hmm. the natural physicians in the 1700s, in the 1600s, when they put salt, when they put sailors on boats, found out that if I put citrus fruit into the water, I don't get scurvy. Mm-hmm. I don't get I don't get issues of vitamin C deficiency because the their foods were vitamin C deficient. Okay. But if I put citrus fruit into the water barrels that they were drinking from, mm-hmm. they got the vitamin C because it comes from the citrus citrus fruit and they no longer had scurvy. Right. And so a lot of the the knowledge that we have about vitamins and a lot of the knowledge we have about a lot of the trace elements come about from us looking at what happens when those things aren't in the diet, as opposed to looking at what happens when those things are in the diet. Okay. Now, there are some vitamins, in particular B vitamins, in particularly folate, mm-hmm. that if I have a genetic issue with a gene that is abbreviated mother effort, that changes the way in which I metabolize that folate yes. and metabolize folic acid, which is linked with neuroatypical behavior associated within the spectrum of behaviors linked with attention deficit issues, in particular um, being obstinate in my attention deficit. Oh, wow. And once again, I have to have that genetic issue with that one gene. Mm-hmm. That doesn't allow me to process the folate and the folic acid appropriately, which causes the neuroatypical issue to come about that leads to uh, neuropsychological and neurocognitive issues associated with obstinate. It's not that having that vitamin mm-hmm. or eating that vitamin or having the folate or the folic acid in my diet is going to cause it. Right. I have to have that inability to properly metabolize it right that causes the issue and that's where if if i'm if i'm uninformed as to all of the metabolism Mm -hmm. and i hear oh well people who have folate in their diet start to express attention deficit issue i'm going to jump to the conclusion that it must be because of folate that i have this attention deficit issue where it's not right it's because i am lacking the gene that allows me to metabolize it correctly yeah, completely different issue. Mm-hmm. So with those vitamins, would you say that it is true that a vitamin B12 deficiency would be linked to Alzheimer's disease, as this video claimed? Uh, to my knowledge, no. Okay. And with Alzheimer's, we have been barking up the wrong tree to use the, the adage, to mm-hmm. use the idiom. Right. We have been studying Alzheimer's based off of an incorrect assumption. And the incorrect assumption is that it's due to a misfolding of one of the neurostructural proteins known as amyloid. Right. And the problem is, is that we don't see amyloid as the root cause of Alzheimer's or Alzheimer's-like dementia across everybody that expresses Alzheimer's or Alzheimer's-like dementia. B12 is involved with a host of metabolic functions and a host of protein assemblages, but it's not the only 
thing that's involved with production of proteins. We see B12 deficiencies more often than not impacting a blood cell and yes. fibroblast mm-hmm. behavior than we see affecting neuron behavior. It doesn't mean that it doesn't. It's just that we see it more often affecting uh, fibroblast things that build connective proteins. Yes. And blood cells, in particular, the, re- the red blood cells, the erythrocytes. In right. the maturation process and the embedding of hemoglobin within the erythrocyte, within the red blood cells, which is why we have to worry about people who are uh, stringent vegetarians or mm-hmm. vegans becoming B12 deficient or people who are highly metabolically active and not consuming enough animal protein becoming mm-hmm. B12 deficient because we end up getting a type of anemia. Right. Now, with that in mind, people with anemia end up having increased risks for um, oxidative stress. Yes. This is where barking up the wrong tree comes into play with Alzheimer's. What we found in the, the hypothesis has changed because we start noticing that it's not strictly due to amyloid issues. Right. Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's-like dementia associated with neural trauma, head injuries, is associated with amyloid. People who have uh, a mutant form of the APO gene, in particular the mm-hmm. APO, APOE4 gene, have increased risks for Alzheimer's. Those people have high amounts of beta amyloid folding. So instead of folding into the normal shape, the amyloid protein folds into a beta shape. That's mm-hmm. simply just the shape of the, the protein. Instead of being like this, it's like that. Yeah. And that causes additional cross-linkages to, to form. Which, which impacts the way in which the neuron is able to send its communication down the axon and release neurotransmitters. Yes. But what we have found, and by we, I mean the scientists who actually study this, what has come about and what's changed the hypothesis is not the amyloid and not the tau, but the increased amount of ROS damage that takes place. Reactive oxidative species damage that takes place. Oxidative stress in general. And oxidative stress in general triggers neurodegenerative issues. Yes. And neurodegenerative issues lead to things like Alzheimer's, like dementia, if it happens to be within parts of the limbic system, in parts of the prefrontal cortex. Yes. That impact my emotional cognitive reasoning, Mm -hmm. impact my memory, impact my uh, emotional intelligence or my my emotional regulatory areas that lead to all of the Alzheimer's-like dementia issues. Once again, it's not due to a single vitamin deficiency. Yeah. There are neurological diseases that are associated with single vitamin deficiencies. Oh, okay. Niacin deficiency and Wernicke syndrome. Yes. And Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome. Comes about because of, of niacin deficiency in particular, niacin deficiency due to increased use of niacin in the liver in the detoxification processing of alcohol, which is why people who are who yes. are heavy drinkers yes. have a higher risk for being niacin deficient than people yes. who are not heavy drinkers. And that's because we utilize the niacin in the unquote, detoxification of alcohol in the liver. Right. And so... It's not because of the drinking that we get the neurological problems. It's because of the, the resultant loss of niacin. And we need niacin in order to, to generate neurotransmitters and have neurons function properly. Right. Just like we do need B12 for neurons to function, but it's not the only thing that's going to cause the Alzheimer's issues. Yes. Alzheimer's is one of those diseases that we want to try to explain by having a single root cause. But mm-hmm. once again, it's. It's a non-communicable disease, and whenever you have non-communicable diseases, it's never a single root cause. There are so many cogs swinging in place that it's very difficult to say it's this one thing and only this one thing Yes, without being able to eliminate every other possible cause. And it's Mm -hmm. usually a, a cluster of causes that interact with each other in such a way to 
lead to the pathophysiology, the disease-causing root cause for the issue. Yeah. Which is why a lot of times they like to think about these things as being, quote-unquote, idiopathic, having no cause. But it's not oh. that they have no cause, it's just they have too many causes. All right. Let's see. I have plenty of wonderful questions. Here's a great one. So, this video was sponsored by something called Levels, I believe. So that's an app. And essentially what it was is they send you this little, I'm not really even sure what it is, I guess a, a type of patch. And you just put it on your skin and it's supposed to monitor blood sugar. I think you have to prick your skin and get the blood out. I, I don't know how it works, so don't hold me to that. But the overarching claim made by the video supporting the sponsor was that different foods in different people, so that's what I got the impression of, not just different foods, different foods per person are going to trigger different reactions in terms of blood sugar. So what one person may eat uh, that may cause blood sugar spike in them will not cause it universally. It's different for everyone. So they advise that everyone try this app and figure out what spikes your blood sugar and pretty much avoid it. That's It wasn't bluntly stated that way, but it was like, hey, if it spikes your blood sugar, it's not good. Don't do that. You're going to increase your likelihood of type 2 diabetes, obesity, all these health issues. So can, well, can different foods even spike different levels of blood sugar? And is that really super different for everybody? Can different foods spike? Yes, different foods can spike okay. differently. Okay. Will the same food act differently within, within different individuals? Not really. Okay. And part of this has to deal... So the difference that we look at between foods mm -hmm. is based off of... If you look at sugar, what they're really talking about is talking about glucose. Mm -hmm. And if we look at glucose, glucose has, has gotten a bad rap. Yes. Sugars in general have gotten a bad rap. Yes. If we look at it in terms of spikes, mm -hmm. all foods are going to cause glucose spikes. Yes. They're going to cause glucose spikes because even if um, eating something that is claimed to be sugar-free, mm -hmm. there is still carbohydrates in there, and those carbohydrates will get metabolized and glucose will rise. Yes. But at the same time, if I'm eating something that, where I'm not eating any starch, anything that has any source of glucose in it, I'm still going to get spikes of glucose throughout the day. Yes. And this is because of the way in which we glucose metabolize and the fact that we have these wonderful cells in our body, in our liver, that are able to take glucose metabolites and make glucose out of them. Yes. Through a process known as gluconeogenesis. And so having that as a caveat. Yes. What the pitch here is, is that we don't want to spike glucose. Yes. We don't want to spike glucose in our body because spiking glucose is going to cause spikes in insulin. Spikes in insulin is going to, it, over time, is going to lead to type 2 diabetes. And that's not how type 2 diabetes develops. Right. In order to get a spike of insulin strictly from eating sugar, you need to consume over 1.2 grams per kilogram of body mass within an hour at one time. Oh, wow. So by pound, that's about 0.5456. So between 0.5 and 0.6 grams per pound of body mass. Right. If I drink a can of Coke. Yes. And I'm using Coke as a general term here, not as the company. Right. If I drink a, a can of pop or all of my... Soda. Yeah. All of my... All of my Northern New York family, Midwest family. That's about 39 grams of, yes. of, of sugar, of glucose. That 39 grams for myself would not by itself spike insulin. Yes. But the sweetness that I get from the pop, from, mm -hmm. the, from the, the soda, because of the linkage that takes place between the gustatory centers, the taste buds mm -hmm. in my mouth, linked to my brain and my brain linked down into my intestines and in, into the the organs of my gut my pancreas in particular yes is going to prime the pancreas to release insulin and so i'm going to get a spike of insulin regardless of whether or not there's a large amount of sugar in the meal or there's no sugar in the meal right insulin gets spiked with the meal yes it doesn't matter whether there's sugar in there or not 
there's other things that get spiked coming away from the pancreas besides just insulin mm-hmm. that come away from the meal because we have digestive enzymes that are being produced. There's a whole bunch of other things that are coming. But everybody talks about this in terms of sugar triggering insulin and insulin and too much causing diabetes. And that's not yes. how that's not how it works. Yeah. What you're measuring when you start measuring blood glucose as it relates to insulin and diabetes is you're measuring a symptom. Yes. Type 2 diabetes, we used to reference as as adult onset diabetes, Mm -hmm. and it wasn't a life sentence. Type 1 diabetes, juvenile diabetes, or insulin-dependent diabetes was a life sentence Mm -hmm. until the early 1900s. And that's when some researchers up in Canada figured out how to isolate insulin from the pancreas, and then uh, pharmaceutical companies figured out how to mass produce those isolates Mm -hmm. so that children who were type 1 diabetic could survive past childhood. Yes. And everybody talks about this as being some sort of new thing. Go back and read Galen and read um, any of the, the Greek physicians, and they will reference sweet urine. Yes. Sweet urine is diabetes mm-hmm. because physicians used to test fluids. And one of the ways they would test fluid is through smell and through taste. And people who were diabetic would excrete large amounts of glucose and large amounts of fructose in their yeah, urine. Right. And it would cause the urine to taste sweet. That's what di- so, so diabetes is about urine. It's about yes. diuresis. Yes. When we talk about diabetes, we're talk- most people are not talking about, well, we're talking about one type of diabetes, diabetes mellitus. Yes, exactly. Mellitus, sweet. Oh. Diabetes, excess urine. This is excess urine that tastes sweet. Once again, this is where understanding words helps you out. Yes, it does. Which is different than another form of diabetes known as diabetes insipidus. I've heard of that one, yes. Diabetes insipidus is where I'm producing excessive amounts of dilute urine with large amounts of salt in it. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And it has to do with an adrenal issue. An aldosterone issue. Okay. And when I have diabetes insipidus, if I was to smell or taste that urine, it would not be sweet. It'd be excessively bitter, insipid. Oh. Mm-hmm. And so that's how we got that diabetes mellitus versus versus diabetes insipidus, which is why it's not like diabetes as a single word. It's actually diabetes mellitus, which yes. is why if you, if you look at any of the abbreviations, it's always DM. Yes. Diabetes mellitus. And so it's not a newfangled thing, but... What we've noticed is that there is a, a rise in population that suffers from diabetic condition. Yeah. Excessive blood glucose levels, excessive amounts of glucose being uh, being excreted from the from the body, all of those factors. And it comes down to metabolic disruptors, chronic inflammation, metabolic disruptors and chronic inflammation, changing glucose metabolism, changing metabolic flexibility within tissues, causing glucose sparing events. And so when we talk about glucose sparing event, what ends up happening is that the liver releases more glucose from its stores, muscle breaks down glycogen stores, but they don't take in glycogen. They don't take in glucose. Glucose stays in circulation, stays in circulation for neurons, which are glucose dependent cells. They're not glucose obligate. They can use other fuel sources besides glucose, Mm -hmm. but all blood cells are glucose obligated tissues. They're glucose obligated cells. They only use glucose for their, for their fuel source. Mm -hmm. When I'm sick, when I have inflammation, Mm -hmm. immune cells go into overactivity. Yes. Their need for fuels goes up, which means I'm sending out these metabolic signals to say, hey, you need to make sure there's glucose in the bloodstream and in the lymph stream, in lymph and in blood, or all of the white blood cells, Mm -hmm. all of the other blood cells to be able to do what they need to do in order to combat this inflammation. Right. Whether it's inflammation because I'm sick, actually have an infection, whether it's inflammation because I'm overstressed. Because oh. stress causes inflammation, right? Cortisol and all cortisol that. and all of that, and all of those all those fun inflammatory hormones. But right. cortisol is only is it, cortisol is only one half the picture. Oh, really? Okay. It's interleukins, in particular, IL one, IL two, and IL six, right? That are going to be at play in terms of in terms of my immune cell activity and the need for glucose in those tissues. Yes, because we have decided to live in an excessively stressful world with very poor stress management skills True. and ever decreasing amounts of physical activity. Mm-hmm. 
we have raised our level of chronic inflammation taking place. We have raised levels of chronic inflammation, which triggers all of this glucose sparing to take place. Even though there's no inflammation taking place, it's simply stress. Right. That stress leads to ROS issues, which leads to degenerative issues. It That excess stress causes spiking in chronic high levels of glucose because of glucose sparing, Mm -hmm. which triggers metabolic inflexibility, the inability to use glucose and lipids and proteins for ATP purposes. Yes. It triggers uh, uh, changes in my hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, my HPA axis, which triggers additional stress. Yes. Which triggers additional interleukin signals. Yes. Which triggers changes in vasculature, the blood vessels, which yeah. causes cardiovascular disease, which triggers additional stress. You see where this is going? Yeah, it never ends. It never ends. And so what's up happening is that we have this, this chronic feedback loop yes. that's, that's all due to chronic stress. And what is up happening is that that chronic stress feeds onto the pancreas and onto the beta cells within the pancreas, within the, the islets of the pancreas, which is where insulin is being produced. Yes. And over time, that causes more insulin to be produced and more insulin to be produced and more insulin to be produced. And it basically wears out those cells. And that's where we start getting into that type 2 diabetic issue, where we're unable to regulate glucose correctly Mm -hmm. because of the chronic stress that's there. Everybody wants to link it to diet and link it to sugar because what we measure is sugar. But at the same time, if I was to, so uh, we're recording this on a Tuesday. If I was to record, if I was to measure all of the glucose on all of the football players from the two games, so there are four teams that played last night on Monday Night Football. Mm-hmm. If I was to measure all of their glucose levels this, today, yes, they would all be elevated because they all have inflammation coming away from that game last night. Oh yeah, all of them would have high glucose levels. It right. doesn't mean that they're di- diabetic. No, no. it simply means that they have inflammation taking place, which is changing the way in which if we were to roll back time yes, about seven weeks mm-hmm. following, mm-hmm. we're recording middle of December, or if I was to go forward two weeks mm-hmm. into all of the partying that takes place around the, the holidays. Yes. And everybody's eating all of the candies and all of yes. the cakes and all the desserts. And I was to measure their blood, glu- blood, blood glucose levels. Right. They would all be excessively elevated. Right. And they'd be excessively elevated because of all of the sugar that is in that food. It doesn't mean that they're spiking their, their sugar. It doesn't mean they're spiking their insulin. It's yes. just what happens because of. Now, if I was to watch them and, and track them over time, they would get rid of that excess glucose, the people who yes. ate it. Mm-hmm. The football players, they would get rid of the excess glucose after inflammation has gone away. Right. One of the things that we can actually measure for people who have like concussions to see if they've actually recovered from their concussion is to measure their glucose levels. Oh wow! Because if they're if they have a, if they have a concussion, they have inflammation taking place, which is going to trigger that glucose spring, which is going to cause a spike in glucose levels. Yes. And so, if if someone has a concussion, if I was to measure and track their blood glucose, I would not allow them to return to play, practice, or otherwise until their glucose levels are back to what their normal glucose levels would be for that person. Yes. Now, with that in mind, mm-hmm. high glucose levels in a Fasted state is one of the things that they look for as a diagnosing of type 2 diabetes. But it's one of the factors. It's not the only factor. Right. What the transdermal measures are doing, what the transdermal things, the, the stickers that you'll put on your on your arm that basically syncs up with your, your stupid phone mm-hmm. and, and, and measures the circulating levels of glucose, what it's doing is it's measuring glucose going through all of the superficial dermal, the very top level of the dermis's capillaries. Yes. It's measuring blood glucose going through those, through those capillaries. Oh, okay. That's what it's doing. And so what that, what, when you put the, when you put that measure, when you put that sticker on, you're basically Mm -hmm. putting on the same spot all the time. Oh. very, Very near that same spot all the time. It's not how we used to measure glucose because we used to go and do a finger prick mm-hmm. we used to milk the finger and put a drop of blood onto a glucose meter strip put the glucose meter strip into the computer box and have the computer box tell us based off of uh, a chemical reaction taking place on the strip how much glucose you happen to have now yes. it's taking place on the on the little transdermal patch yes and that's all it's doing it's simply measuring glucose level if i happen to have over fatness that's impacting my glucose metabolism i'm going to see very wide swings yes 
in my glucose levels over the day. But the thing that I'm actually more interested in, in terms of do I have diabetic issues stemming from over fatness, is not the glucose levels, but the A1C levels. Because A1C is the indication that I've had glucose levels excessively elevated for excessive amounts of time. Yes. And that's causing glucose to be embedded onto the hemoglobin, which is changing the way in which hemoglobin is functioning. And these are referred to as glycated hemoglobin. Yes. But the other thing I have to measure is I have to measure insulin level. Because once again, excessive glucose levels, because of the trigger on the pancreas to release insulin, is high amounts of glucose in the blood under non-eating conditions. Yes. And that's the key here, non-eating. When I eat, one of the hormones that gets produced automatically when I start eating is insulin, which is why we cannot take an insulin test in and around when you eat, which is why when we do measurements of insulin and glucose, we always want to do it in a fasted state. Right. At least eight hours in between meals. Right. And so one of the things that that a lot of people get wrong when they start talking about the obesity over fatness issue and diabetes is that, oh, it's it's how much sugar I've been eating. Well, the amount of sugar might impact fatness. Yeah. But sugar by itself is not going to be the root cause for a type two diabetic issue, a metabolic syndrome induced diabetes. Right. There are a whole other host of factors that are going to cause that because it's coming away from that chronic inflammatory signaling right? that's going to change the way in which I metabolize everything. Once again, with all of that in mind, mm-hmm. the amount of sugar I need in my diet is going to change as I age. Oh, okay. And that's because of my metabolism and what I'm using my nutrients for. And it goes back to, instead of looking at it in terms of a caloric balance, we have to look at it in terms of a nutrient balance. Mm-hmm. What nutrients are the cells going to need for energy, for fuel, to make mm-hmm. ATP? What nutrients are the cells going to need to grow? What nutrients are the cells going to need to repair? Yes. If I'm growing, I'm not going to be utilizing lipids and proteins, amino acids, for fuel sources. I'm going to use those for making cell membranes and making more proteins because I'm growing. Yes. I'm going to use the sugars, the glucose, for the fuel sources. Mm -hmm. So if we think about it, what or whom would be a primary sugar metabolism Type person. Older people? Older people to a certain extent, but younger people. That too. Kids are sugar machines. They They are. They run on sugar. They run on glucose. You can kind of tell based off of uh, what's referred to as psychological bliss point, Mm -hmm. what type of fuel source you're going to be predominantly using. Because I'm sending, once again, I'm sending signals up to the areas in the brain that are regulating, hey, you need to eat. Hey, dummy, hey, dummy, hey, dummy. Time to eat, time to eat, time to eat. If I'm young, my bliss point my most enjoyable response comes from things that taste sweet. Oh, yeah. And that's because my body needs those in order to metabolize so that I can be as active as I as I am mm-hmm. while allowing the things that need to grow and repair the ability to grow and repair. As I get out of puberty, that sweetness changes. Oh. My bliss point for sweet actually shifts down in sweetness. Oh, wow. Okay. Things that when I was a kid, I would say doesn't taste sweet at all, now mm-hmm. taste too sweet. And that's because my... My metabolism has shifted. Yes. And that shift in metabolism gets masked with what am I desiring to eat? Mm-hmm. But the problem is, and it goes into something that was indicated within the, the obesity conspiracy video, that kids are over-consuming sugar and kids are not over-consuming sugar. Once again, we're blaming sugar on a lot of things that we should not be blaming sugar on. Yes. Are kids over-consuming nutrients? A lot of them are. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the consumption of nutrients has allowed humans to become slightly larger. And I'm not talking about over fat large. I'm talking about actually like taller, yes, healthier, living longer. Mm-hmm. And that all stems from the impact that nutrition has on my health and on my metabolism. Right. And it goes back into that whole, all those cogs and the genetic cog and the epigenetic cog. And there's two really cool studies that have looked at what happens epigenetically, the regulation of genes as a whole. Mm-hmm. Based off of feast and famine, oh, overconsumption, underconsumption, and it's different based off of mother impact and father impact, and it's not mom and dad. Your mom and dad, mm-hmm. it's actually great. It's actually grandparent and great grandparent impact. Oh, because it, it, once again, epigenetics usually don't impact next generation, but impact two generations down. Oh, and it has to do with when are gametes forming for the females. Mm-hmm. And when are gametes being impacted on the male side? 
And one of the things that came out from these studies, and they were done on in Europe on people who survived oppression during World War II. Oh, wow. Okay. And done in the United States, comparing people who suffered through the Dust Bowl versus people who were of affluence during the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. And one of the things they found out is that females who had to survive excessive starvation mm-hmm. had grandchildren who were had limited metabolic flexibility, independent of everything else. Wow. Had, had, had greater risk for overfatness issues and what we would call obese issues. Flip okay. it for the males. Yeah. And it has to do with, with what happens to the genes that regulate the sync types of metabolism. Yeah. And this is where the geneticists want to say, oh, it's all about the genes, but it's not about the genes. It's about how the genes are being regulated based off of all of the interactions that take place. Yeah. Because we do know that there are genes that come into play. Mm-hmm. This is where, where we have to remember is that when we look at the obesity and look at the overfatness, there are things that are inside of our control and there are things that are outside of our control. Right. And genes are outside of our control. Mm-hmm. But how those genes are functioning, how those genes actually work is inside of our control. Yes. And that's because genes are, you know, remember that genes are nothing more than a, than a, than a book of code. Right. And how we use that code is going to be dependent upon how we read that book. Exactly. And the way in which we read that book is based off of what stresses we place on the body mm-hmm. and how the body has to respond to those stresses. And exactly. so- that's all hormone, that's all nutrients, that's all, all of the stresses that we face on a daily basis. Yes. Having an impact on the genes and on the cell, cellular responses based off of how those genes are being turned on or being turned off, and in some cases, epigenetically silent. Oh, wow. And that's where, and that's where we had that feast-famine issue coming into play. Mm-hmm. And two generations down, and one generation, two, two generations down the line, which is why we've seen an explosion in obesity issues within a population. Wow. Because we had a l- large gene pool yeah. that all went through feast famine cycling at the same time that all had the same epigenetic change take place to them. Wow. Where if you start looking at, okay, so what generation do we see this obesity graph go exponential curve up? Mm-hmm. It's not the, it's not the quote unquote greatest generation, the, mm-hmm. World War II generation. It's not the silent generation, which is basically the teenagers during World War II that weren't part of World War II. Yes. It wasn't the baby boomers. No. It was the children of the baby boomers, the Gen Xers, and the children of the Gen Xers, the millennial Gen Yers. Yes. Do ba- do, are, are baby boomers impacted by obesity issues? Yes, but at no higher rate than previous generation. Oh, wow. Obesity has always been, obesity has always been around. Mm-hmm. The health impacts of obesity, the health impacts of overfatness have always been around. Nothing of the, no, none of this is, is new. Right. We're simply trying to reframe it as being new, even yes. though it's, it's actually very bad for us to say, oh, let's reframe it as being new, because when we, when we attempt to reframe it as new, we ignore the historical perspective. Exactly. The, the idea of diet and uh, dietary restrictions. Right is not new. The idea of medical use of diets is not new. Uh, the idea of nutritional sanitariums, nutritional hospitals, was, yeah. was huge in the 1800s and early 1900s. The idea of elixirs, supplements to of cure things, is not new. In fact, all of those things are still around. We just don't call them cures anymore. Mm-hmm. The Kellogg's company, got started as a nutritional supplement, got started yes. as a, hey, we're going to eat this grain to cure digestive issues because I'm a vegetarian. I believe that everybody should be a vegetarian. Yes. That's, 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 what, it's, that's what it started out as. Mm-hmm. Post grew out of Kellogg. And so if you look at all of the, the General Mills, if you look at all of those cereal companies, they all grew out of the same idea. Mm-hmm. And the same idea is, is that meat and animal needs to go away, grains and Vegetables and fruits need to be increased. Exactly. It's a, it's a vegetarian perspective. Right. If you look at uh, taking elixirs to cure to cure things, the cure-alls, we still have them. We just don't call them that anymore. We now call them soda pop. Yeah, exactly. All of the all of the soda pops were were developed 
as a means to cure ailments. Right. They don't have, with the exception of the extracts from the cola nut Mm -hmm. and additional caffeine, there's nothing added to those sodas that would actually have a pharmacological effect. No. Well, with the exception of some of the bicarbonate that comes about from the carbonic acid in the in the oh, soda. Oh yeah. And so so there is some some of of that that comes into play. But other than that there's there's nothing that's there. The the uh the grandma cure for upset stomach by drinking uh uh seven up. Yeah. Why? Because there actually used to be products part of the product of seven up that actually allowed for relaxation to help with digestive ailments. But there's all, but there also used to be additives in Seven Up that allowed for uh, re- changes in neuronal function. There used oh, to be, wow. yeah, there used to, uh, lithium dioxide used to be same thing that was used for bipolar. Oh, used to be a part of the part of the Seven Up <laughs> ingredients. Pepsi Cola was developed as a, a means to help with protein digestion. Oh. Some uh, well, not necessarily protein digestion, but just digestion in general, mm-hmm. because of the fact that it, it one of the things that Pepsi, pepsin, mm-hmm. same. If if you once again, with the exception of, uh, I believe RC Cola is the only one that I know of that was never marketed as anything other than a a, a, a drink. Yeah, a beverage. A beverage. I mean, Moxie Cola was advertised as something to invigorate the nerves. Coca-Cola was was sold as part of a cure-all. Yes. And that's because it used to actually have stuff in there that actually had impacts on neurophysiology and on, on regular physiology. It had cocaine in it. It had cocaine yeah. in it. It had, co- it had a cola nut extract with caffeine. But it was also, but also added other things into it. Yeah. That had that that added to to the effect. And so when we start advertising all these things and marking all these things as being, oh, this brand new thing. It's just like, well, let's take a step back and look at the history. Yeah. And that's that part of what's, what's going on with, with the, the presentation of the video is that, oh, we, ha- we now have this new monitor. Mm-hmm. It's nothing more than the monitor where I would prick my finger and, te- and take a drop of blood and put it on a monitor. It's just a little bit easier. Yeah, a little more convenient. It's, it's a little more convenient. And it's not the only monitor that's out there. No. And... It's and part of the the pits that they that they have within the, within their their whole spiel is about changing diet because diet has too much sugar in it. And once mm-hmm. again, you have to go back. It's like, okay, who needs sugar in their, in their diet? Who doesn't need sugar in the diet? Well, everybody needs sugar. Oh yeah, everybody needs at least 120 grams of glucose in a day just for neuronal function. If I'm a student, I need a, I need a lot more than that. If I'm oh, a yeah. kid, I'm gonna need a whole bunch more than. That. Mm-hmm. However, if I'm older, I may not need as much. I may need a little bit more than what I than what I think I need. Yes, but I'm still going to need it. And a lot of things that we think about in terms of of, of sugar, we 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 usually talk about in terms of a calorie and caloric balance. And it's like, oh, you need to avoid potato chips because they're empty calories. Yes, well, I hear that a lot. Well, what, what what do you mean? So so I shouldn't eat potatoes? Oh no, go ahead and eat potatoes. Just don't eat potato chip. What's the difference between a potato and a potato chip? Salt. Maybe salt and oil that it was fried in. Yeah, but that doesn't change what I'm getting from the potato. The, from the potato, and as long as I'm not over consuming other things with that potato chip, my nutrient balance doesn't get out of whack. Out of whack. The problem is, is that the when we start looking at foods in that in that way, what it does is it leads to other issues. Yes, it leads to uh, as we talked about earlier. It leads to the exercise bulimic issues that yes. are on the rise mm-hmm. because we don't understand energy, energy density because we get, oh, that's empty calories. Well, what's that? So now, so now I should, I should avoid those foods. Mm-hmm. I should avoid those foods because they're empty calories, which means that I now have to go and exercise more in yeah. order to get rid of those empty calories. Yes. To put quotes around all of that. <laughs> and that's, and, and that's because Okay, so I'm gonna. Uh, I, I've, I've the rest of my workout that I have to do, do today. I'm not doing it based off. Okay, I have to go and do so many calories. It's okay. What is this? What's today's workout? What's the? What is the focus of the workout based off the performance goal that I'm that I'm training for? Yes. And that's how we have to. And that's how we should put focus mm-hmm. 
all of the interventions that we look at in terms of the obesity issues, the over fatness issues, is what is the goal for the lifestyle changes? And the goal for the lifestyle changes is to reduce the issues of over fatness, reduce the chronic inflammation. Mm-hmm. You can reduce chronic inflammation issues without changing one thing in body weight. Really? Your physiology will change before your body weight will change. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. That's true. Eight to 12 weeks before you will see across everybody mm-hmm. changes in body mass. Wow. But you will see changes in physiology within a week. And what, what would some of those markers be? You would, you, would, you would see changes in levels of inflammatory markers. You would see changes in levels of, of, uh, of hyperinsulinemia. You see changes in hypo and hyperglycemia, high yes. glucose, high insulin. You'd see reduction in uh, cortisol. You see reductions in, uh, in epinephrine, norepinephrine. You would see changes in brain, brainwave patterning. Wow. Within, within a week, based off of changes in physical activity behaviors. Yes. Before you would see uh, uh, any change whatsoever in your body morphology. But the problem is the way in which everything is marketed. It's everything quick. is marketed about body changing and body changing quickly. And it, that doesn't yes. happen. No, it doesn't. And changing one spot in your body, which doesn't happen. You cannot gain weight in one area. You cannot lose weight in one area outside no. of surgical incisions. So we'll end the conversation uh, with that key point. Thanks for uh, joining the conversation and the podcast. Hopefully you got something out of the three episodes that we used to have the discussion on the uh, video that we uh, went through on the obesity conspiracy. If you have uh, questions, please make sure you reach out to those who can help you out with answering those questions. If you need support, please make sure you use those links that are provided to you. Please make sure you're giving us those uh, five-star reviews. Click that like button, click that subscribe button if you haven't already subscribed. Share out with those who you think might be interested in uh, listening to what we're putting out and reading what we're putting out. Make sure you're following us on all of the platforms that we're publishing on here on the podcast, as well as on the YouTube channel, Substack, as well as the quick uh, video links and images on threads and on Instagram.